Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyze the latest news from across Ukraine, and we discuss the implications of remarks made by Vladimir Putin on Thursday, in which the Russian leader sought to draw a flattering comparison between himself and the 17th century monarch, Peter the Great. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 10th of June, day 107. And today I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, and Francis Sternley, assistant comment editor. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from the battlefront. Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been another brutal day in the east of east of the Donbass, uh, around the city of Severodonetsk. A lot of artillery still being traded in that area, and the city, the fighting in the city still goes on. It's largely in Russian hands, but uh, but still going on. Um, in fact, just a, a very brief segue there. A question from from Paul, a listener. Paul came in saying, "Why?" Why is Ukraine still fighting in Severodonetsk and, and why haven't they withdrawn west uh, across the bank of the river to the much better ground and easier to hold the ground that's easier to hold around uh, Lysychansk? I think the answer to that, Paul, is that they are, they've got a lot of fighters in the area. They've got, I think, four brigades in the area. So they've still got a very credible force there, as tough, as tough as it is. So they think they, they, they have the option of going back to that tougher, uh, tougher ground, but they still want to fight for every every inch they can. They don't want to see too, um, too much to to the enemy. They've seen what can happen down in Mariupol. They don't want that to happen anywhere else if they if they at all can can help it. But obviously, it, it is coming at, at a great cost. Um, elsewhere, uh, Ukraine have said that they carried out a number of airstrikes in the south around the city of Kherson. President Zelensky himself gave that gave that news and said that that was that was a a, a red bit of good news he said that they were uh, quote holding on in the east and i think that is about as as uh, as accurate a picture accurate a description as you can get there's no there's hardly any forward movement from russia virtually no forward movement at all from ukraine they are holding on there in the east but there's a lot of heavy heavy fighting elsewhere great speech Great in terms of what it, what I think it means. We will come back to this from Putin yesterday, and um, and some movements from uh, from Western leaders, including Macron. But uh, more of that later. Definitely, yes. We'll get into that later and analyze uh, what Putin said and what it means for understanding this conflict and its implications for the region. Um, Francis, can I come to you before before we go on to that? Um, this this news broke after yesterday's live. Um, this is the case of three foreign fighters who've been sentenced to death for fighting. Uh, Russian forces. Um, can we talk about that? What, what happened and what's the West response been? 
Yes, well, it, it broke yesterday just after the uh, our podcast recording. Um, so this, uh, some of this is an update on, on what actually took place um, um, during the day yesterday. Um, but essentially, uh, listeners will be aware of Aidan Aslin and Sean Pinner, who are two um, Britons who are, are were captured um, uh, during the war several weeks ago. And um, they have now been sentenced to death for um, for fighting um, in the war. And actually, the, the the sort of charge is that it's for taking action towards the violent seizure of power. So again, interesting for the for, for those who've been following the development of the Russian narrative in in, in recent weeks. Um, but essentially, what we've seen in 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 the last few few hours is. Uh, talk of there being a prisoner swap involving these two um, two Britons, um, and and that the, the local MP for them, Robert Jenrick, has said that uh, who who's should I should say as actually for Mr. Aslin's family, not uh, not Mr. not Mr. Pinners, has said that you know the, the, the sentence to death is completely outrageous, and um, the government are working with the Ukrainian ambassador um, in negotiations, and, and and the Ukrainians are said to be giving priority to that, and the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss will speak to to her Ukrainian counterpart later to, to, later today. Um, in terms of, of of who might be swapped for them, we understand that um, top of the list from the Russian perspective would be a high profile uh, figure such as Viktor Mavedchuk, who was, um, listeners may recall, um, the country's most prominent Ukraine, that is, most prominent pro-Russian politician, um, nicknamed the Dark Prince of Ukrainian politics. He's 67 years old and um, had a very close relationship with, with the Kremlin. Um, supported Moscow's illegal alle- uh, annexation of the Crimean Peninsula in 2014, um, and uh, as a, over the years has acted as a go-between uh, for for Moscow and Ukraine's separatist-controlled um, breakaway regions. And the thinking is that, given the 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 international uh, situation and how it's developing, and and the, the prominence of, of of these two Britons, that this is a, a good opportunity for um, Putin to essentially. Uh, get get back one of his own and 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 gain some propaganda propaganda success from that um that may well be the the his in, in intention but we 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 yet to see and that's of course not been confirmed but i think one thing we can say for sure and speculate for sure is that um uh vladimir putin will will seek to be using um uh, these two captured Britons and their plight uh, in his propaganda, and not only that, uh, in order to strengthen his um, negotiating hand with the West. But I'll, I'll pause there. Just very quickly on that, I think it's good to reflect on the fact that both are being charged with, with, with accused of being mercenaries, whereas they were actually fighting with the Ukrainian armed forces. They're not mercenaries. Um, it, could this be seen as a bit of a, a a threat to all foreign fighters that actually the, the Russians are, are happy to ignore the conventions if they if, if they if they see fit? Um, Dom and Francis, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think you've hit it on the head there. I mean, is Russia happy to ignore conventions? Yes, absolutely. We've seen that in in many many different spheres. We're now seeing it through uh, through the legal sphere here of, of, of Geneva Conventions, prisoner of war conduct, and um, international norms in this regard. I mean, yes, they were. Uh, both served in the Ukrainian military. One was, I think, one had Ukrainian has Ukraine joint Ukrainian citizenship, had a had a life in the country, planned to get married. I mean, but even that is is largely irrelevant. If they are combatants, if they are taking part in armed action, and they are identified as such by wearing 
um, uh, insignia and uniform and identify with people around them, then they they get the the protections of the Geneva Convention as a as a combatant. So the, this idea of, of being a mercenary is is a is complete smokescreen by Russia. I'd be very interested. I, I, so I I don't mean to gloss over it, but I think I think the the points have been made, and there's there's no much there's not much point digging further for Russia's motivation on this because we're not going to come to some golden nugget. I think we know what the motivation here here is. So we so we just just take it for what it is and, and move on. I think the I think the really interesting bit would be if we could speak to if we could speak to some people in the Wagner Group, a private military company. You know, you say potato, I say Wagner's a, a mercenary group. Um, you know, how would they feel about this if they are fighting for a for a man who sits sits over a a regime that is prepared to do this? Would they feel that? I mean, they're being told they're fighting Nazis for starters. So would they feel blimey? I I thought I was doing my bit for Mother Russia, take, taking a coin, fine. But I thought I was uh, doing doing my bit. Am I going to be treated as a mercenary? Am I going to be uh, uh, tried and, and given the death sentence? So I'd be interested to see what the Wagner Group have to say about this. Of course, my my history with the Wagner Group doesn't go particularly well um, with Yevgeny Prigozhin, but that's that's a story for another time. But I think this is uh, it's very very telling that this is just power politics at play here. Uh, it must be absolutely terrifying for the individuals concerned, and I'm, I'm not in any way seeking to make light of that for them or their families. But I I don't think this is more than a than a power play. I think there will be there will be a deal. This is yet another thorn that um, Putin is able to to prod in the side of of the West. Um, and and yes, it will be it'll be a there'll be it'll be a long time coming, but I think they will they will be handed over. And if I may, just one final point. Absolutely correct that there have been Ukrainian courts have have conducted war crimes trials, and uh, some Russian soldiers have been convicted, and we we saw that recently. Now we've got to be very clear because Russia would want us to lump all these together in terms of judicial action as a result of this messy messy war. I mean, very clearly on the Ukrainian side, it was an established and internationally recognised court that laid down specific charges. That is not what's happened in Donetsk against these two uh, Brits. Uh, so there is no moral equivalence here. The the people, the Russian soldiers that were tried, the, the guy I forget the guy's name who was who was, uh, and I should forget the bloke's name, who uh, who was convicted of murdering the Ukrainian man uh, in Bucha. That was a a war crime and was tried as such. And there is no moral equivalence between that war crime and what these Brits have been allegedly done or allegedly been just being, being a mercenary. There is no moral equivalence here. We should, we should not allow ourselves to be, to, to, to be bullied into thinking, oh, it's, it's all, it's all legalese. It's all former soldiers. It's all the same. It's definitely not the same. And we, and we need to be very clear about making the distinction. Let's, Let's move on. There's a lot to get to, uh, get through. Sorry. Um, in the south, there's been an outbreak of cholera in Mariupol. Um, Francis, what's happening there? Yes, well, just to depict how how bleak things are in 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 the southern city of Mariupol, we do believe that there is risk of a major cholera outbreak there, um, as medical services are are we understand already pretty near collapse. Um, this is from the British uh, Defence Ministry. Of course, every day we're putting out briefings that are um, saying you know what our understanding of what's going on in the conflict, and this is something that they've clearly done some um, analysis into. And uh, from this, it, it would appear that Russia is struggling to provide 
basic public services to the population in those Russian-occupied territories. Um, I don't think that should come as to, to a surprise when you're seeing a conflict such as this where clearly um, the Russian army is ill-equipped and has suffered such heavy losses. Clearly they will be prioritising their soldiers and, and <laughs> unfortunately it will be the um, poor people of, of those occupied territories who will be the last in line um, to receive food supplies and adequate medical care. Um, soldiers will be um, will be prioritised. Of course, Mariupol is, is, has become one of the symbols of, of, of resistance in Ukraine, and this is a, a, a what would appear to be a, a, yet another tragic development in its story. Um, but I think it, it speaks to a broad point here, which is that the the challenge that the Russians are going to face long term about winning round um, these areas to their way of thinking if they're able to hold on to them at all, of course, which is a very big um, a very big ask indeed, given the, the nature of the Ukrainian successes in, in, in recent months and weeks. Um, but it, as I say, it, I think it's there's one of the old maxims of war, which is that it's impossible to win against the enemies you've created by your own actions. Um, you know, the fact is, is that the... Uh, many of these the, the conquested territory that has been taken um, it will, as we've been seeing yesterday um, in, in, in Kurzon, there are already big resistance movements that have been growing up. And of course, part of the reason for that is the suffering experienced since those the Russians took over these territories and um, how they can expect to think that, that this will not now be a protracted conflict in which um, there will be uh, attacks, consistent resistance attacks in those occupied areas um, as a result of how badly they are being treated. I just don't know. I mean, it's obvious that, 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 this, that, that this is going to be a very, very protracted um, attritional conflict in those places, um, assuming, of course, that the Russian army doesn't completely implode and collapse, which we can't rule out either. So, yes, a, a tragic uh, addition to the Mariupol um, story um, and one that no doubt we'll hear more about in the coming days. Thanks, Francis. Um, Dominic, turning to you, there's been, uh, I know you wanted to speak a little bit about ammunition, potential problems the Ukrainian army is, uh, is facing in terms of ammunition supplies. Um, what do you have on that? Yeah, first, I should say, just to go backstage, Alexander Shelipov, he was the, the Ukrainian man who was, who was murdered and, and the, the route of the war crimes uh, trial in recent weeks. Alexander Shelipov, 62-year-old man, Yes, uh, ammunition. There are reports that Ukraine is is and Russia, but but this this the report in the Guardian actually today's Guardian um, is saying that there's quoting the U- Ukrainian deputy uh, director of intelligence or defense intelligence saying that they are running out of old Soviet era ammunition, and of course that not only are they are they fighting a hard fight and trying to transform whilst in contact with the enemy, which is always very very difficult to do, um, but they are using up ammunition. And the Western supplied ammunition that's coming in is is largely, certainly in terms of artillery, a different calibre. So they're having to completely change their systems as well as running out of, of the stocks they've got. And if you could, you know, I'm sort of drawing in the air now, a, a dip in a, in a curve. So they're running out of ammunition. There is more coming, but it's a different calibre. And at the moment, they're sort of on the, at the bottom of that, that dip. I know you can't see this, but I assure you I am waving in the air. Um, so they are, they are, suffering doubly from from running out of the stocks they have whilst also having to transform onto a onto a new uh, a new a whole new system uh, so it's it's tough as we as we um as we've seen in the the results on the ground i.e they're making very very limited counterattacks uh, in the north they had they had done around Kharkiv there have been some pushing in the in the south around Kherson 
uh, but very, very little in the East. And as President Zelensky said, they are holding on. That seems to be about as much as they can do. And uh, Russia, for their part, seem to be culminating. As we say, culminating is when you can no longer take offensive action, but you are you are not having to retreat. You're just sort of grinding to a halt, really. So it, it, whether or not that happens as this ammunition shortage really starts to, to bite and before the Western supplied munitions flow in, um, these, these, this is this is the fog of war. This is all. This is why war is chaotic, and you can never guarantee the outcome. But it um, uh, it doesn't take me to, to say, but that these are exceedingly testing times for um, Ukrainian forces. But yeah, that that story came from the Guardian. If you want to see any more of that, uh, go and have a look at them online. It was a good good report. Thanks, Tom. Um, our next update is is still potentially more bad news for the for the Ukrainians. Um, there's a uh, leaked intelligence report which speaks about how cases of desertion are growing every week in the Ukrainian army. Um, Francis, can you comment on this? What did we learn? Yes, well, this uh, leaked report, which has been seen by The Independent, and we've we've also written a, an analysis piece on it today, so I recommend that people take a look at that, um, essentially is saying that the, the cases of desertion, as you say, are, are growing every week in the Ukrainian army, um, as up to 200 of its soldiers are being killed every day in the eastern Donbass. Um, Supposedly, as according to the report, that this worsening situation in the East is, is, and I quote, having a seriously demoralizing effect on Ukrainian resource forces, as well as a very real material effect. Cases of, of desertion are growing every week. Now, um, uh, we obviously are doing um, some more research into this, and so we can't completely corroborate the numbers. But there's been some interesting pieces that have come out since then. Um, We've got a comment in our article by a Georgian fighter who joined the Ukrainian army's International Legion on the front lines. And he sort of disputes this. Um, Now, obviously, one has to take this with a pinch of salt when there are active soldiers who are clearly trying to keep morale high. But even so, he disputes this, this, this idea and says that actually morale is high amongst his comrades who are fighting in the East. Um, um, But and they're still at this stage well well equipped but the so the, the the question mark around morale and the biggest concern for them and that of course may be contributing to to, to cases of, of, of desertion is the west slowing down in its supply of weapons um and ammunition and of course humanitarian aid um that the people require um and that then they don't feel that they're necessarily getting the quantity uh, that they need it's not fast enough and it's not um that's that's the issue that everybody is is talking about. And I think if that's true, then it just speaks again and underlines the point that we've been making several times this week, that ultimately um, the West's commitment to this or perception of commitment to this um, is absolutely vital. You know, it has a huge impact um, on on morale on, on the ground. And this idea that, that it may somehow be losing some of its focus, you know, France and Germany, for the reasons we'll be talking about this week, wanting to, to, to make concessions and not sending all of the weaponry they've promised, um, it, it, it all has an uh, has an effect, and so it just, I, as I say, I think it speaks to the urgency for for the resolve and the focus of of the of, of the West and its support of Ukraine to be to be strengthened. Because clearly, there are concerns on the ground by those who are actually fighting this fight daily um, that 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 some of that support is perhaps weakening, and that will have a big psychological impact. So, something that I think should be should be a, a focus and a concern for for, for the NATO powers. Absolutely. Thank you, Francis. Well, let's move on. Um, yesterday, Vladimir Putin uh, offered a 
clear summation of his war goals. Uh, he compared himself in a speech to Peter the Great and claimed that he was reclaiming territory for Russia. Um, Darman Francis, I know you've got many, many thoughts about this, what this tells us about Putin's self-image uh, and how this might impact how the West um, views uh, Russia, its, its war aims and, and its thinking. Um, Dom, do you, want to, do you want to take this first? Sure. Well, it, I mean, it, it was it was Putin to the rescue, quite frankly, uh, leading on from France's point a moment ago of, of, of wavering or or foot dragging from some Western capitals. I mean, in, in comes Putin with this most extraordinary speech, speaking in Moscow to young entrepreneurs and, and scientists. I won't read the whole speech, but the bit about Peter the Great, he said, this is a quote, Peter the Great waged the Northern War, as against Sweden, the, war, the, the Northern War for 21 years. You might think he was fighting with Sweden, seizing their lands. He wasn't capturing them. He was reclaiming them. And so he went on about uh, these wars and, and uh, it's all about the, the state should reclaim what's theirs and blah, 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 blah. I mean, finally, at last, the, the, the mask, if not slips, he, he, he casts it aside with a, with a flourish of Peter the Great. I mean, if ever there was any doubt about what this war is all about, it's it's been revealed. Okay, it's not about denazification. It's not about uh, legitimate security concerns. It's not about NATO expansion. It's about one man's ego and wanting to be a 17th century imperialist um, dictator, basically. And and he's finally re- revealed it to us. So there is there is now nowhere for the apologists and the foot draggers to go. It's it's pick a side time. And the the fact that. Uh, that Putin's done this, I think, I think is his after invading in the first place, which was, I think was a massive mistake, strategic mistake. I think this is his second one because he's now forced the likes of Macron and Schultz and others to, to comment because they will have to comment. There'll, there'll be people like me throwing questions at them. And so they, they now have to, have to either back up their position, their somewhat reluctant position, um, uh, in terms of military support and political support, um, or, or justify it. And so I think this is absolutely incredible. Um, foreign policy analyst Ulrich Speck, we, sh- we should all be following on, on Twitter, he made the point that that this is classic Putin. He only sees a few countries in the world as relevant, the US, China and Russia. Uh, and he sees that, that, that these great powers make history and others just have to suffer history as playgrounds for the for these few great powers. Um, and all respect makes the point that this is not not new from Putin, but he's never really said it so explicitly. And so I think this was I think this is absolutely fascinating. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a gaffe. He didn't it didn't let it slip out and then try and backtrack. He was he was proud in what he was saying. I think this was possibly some of the most honest words we've ever heard from from Vladimir Putin. And and as I say, there is now nowhere to hide for um for the for the foot draggers and the, and those who are who are seeking to you know, keep the channels of communication open that's great but but sometimes you've got to realize when you're you're part of the problem not part of the solution and I, and I think we're now we're now over that first hurdle if the first hump is to realize what the fight is that you're in and the second bit is then what are you going to do about it well we are finally over that first over that first hump there can be no doubt about it now this man wants land and he's looking at looking at uh, reclaiming land. You'll have the Baltic states who have been very clear-eyed about this and saying Article 5, notwithstanding, he's, he's, he's a threat. Um, and the Baltic states in particular have been pushing NATO to, to really beef up its eastern flank. And it'll be interesting to see the NATO summit at the end of June, which is supposed to be the point that Finland and Sweden join, whether or not they shift from this, this position of um, deterrence by punishment, saying 
you can you can cross the line, but but I'll I'll give you a fight and you'll get a bloody nose. To deterrence by denial, because you, you don't want to have a, have a punishment. You don't want have you don't want them to invade you. So these calls for NATO to to be beefed up on the eastern flank now are now almost irresistible. And finally, as I say, that the mask if it if it didn't slip, um, it was it was I don't think it slipped. I think it was just cast aside by Putin. And we finally see him for what it is and see this war. It's about land and territory. It's nothing to do with legitimate security concerns. Yeah, if I could just underline what uh, and, and agree with with everything that Dom has, has just said there, I think this is a, a a hugely significant speech and one actually that I think has we've we've done a big splash on it today um, uh, online and in, and in the paper, which I recommend that people take a look at. Um, others have not done so, and I think um, that's um, not that's to their detriment because this is um, as I say, the mask has has slipped. I find it fascinating that um, it's this Peter a great. Peter the Great, a historical illusion that he's appealing to. One of the great unanswered questions or or thought thought debates um, around Vladimir Putin is: Is he a, a sort of a, a throwback to the Soviet Union? Is he trying to rebuild the Soviet Union, or is he really a a sort of a, is it the imperialist czarist era that he really sort of idolizes? Um, certainly, my own view is that it's more the latter. Um, I've been to, to to Russia, and one of the most striking things that one sees there is the way in which the state is essentially rebuilding. Uh, all of the palaces from the Tsarist era, making cities like St. Petersburg look like they did at their prime in the uh, in the um, 18th and 19th centuries. And indeed, um, these remarks by um, Putin, he actually commented on St. Petersburg um, specifically. So he said, uh, quote, when Peter the Great laid the new capital in St. Petersburg, none of the European countries recognised this territory as Russian. Everyone recognised it as Swedish. So clearly he is operating, um, um, at least in this example, uh, in, in, in thinking about the 18th century borders, 18th century strategies and, 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 and imperial Russia and everything else. Um, but I do think that, and, and this is something that we've, we've made this point on the podcast before, is that I don't think we should, we should only say that he's an imperialist from the 18th century he's only got echoes of, of the Soviet Union at the end of the day this man is a megalomaniac who cherry picks from history whatever appeals to him at any given time I mean we've made numerous references to the document that he wrote back in July where he was um, um, uh, pontificating about Ukraine's role and now we understand that it was essentially laying the groundwork for the invasion on a sort of philosophical level um, and in that document he talks about um, you know Ukraine effectively not being a, a real state until it was built by Lenin and then he picks examples from its sort of medieval past. Kiev of course plays a hugely significant role in the foundation of the Russian religion and he talks about that. So it seems to me that this is somebody who has a, has a worldview and then goes to history in an attempt to justify it rather than the other way around. And, and that, of course, is a very, very dangerous thing to do, not least if you're trying to learn lessons from history and military strategy, um, because uh, ultimately when one is, uh, is, is, is trying to justify one's actions in retrospect, then you will make uh, critical errors not only militarily um, and, and strategically, um, but also particularly around intelligence. Um, what, again, one of the sort of lessons of intelligence gathering is that one should never ask for um, evidence for what you already believe. Um, but that seems to be exactly what Putin did. Um, and that was arguably his biggest mistake in the lead up to the war is that he believed that the country would fall quickly. He believed it really was perhaps um, 
um, uh, a country that was ready to, to to sort of be assumed, absorbed into into his state, and and clearly that was um, completely wrong. So I think, um, in a sense, this should be seen in the context of, of of pushing aside this debate around is he a czar or is he a, uh, a, a communist dictator, and just say he's 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 his own entity that is operating in a moral vacuum, um, and 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 ultimately one who who looks at the past for justification. Of his insanity, rather than uh, in an attempt to, uh, to 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 learn the lessons and, and act accordingly. Um, so yes, I completely agree with Dom. I think this is a hugely significant moment, and I would urge people to read his remarks and to and to think deeply upon them. So very quickly, Francis, on that because we had a, a conversation before we came on air, and I asked you, um, well, you know, if he's comparing himself to, I think I asked Dom the same question actually. If, if he's comparing himself to Peter the Great. What can that tell us? You know, what were Peter the Great's um, territorial ambitions? Where did he get to? All that kind of stuff. But what it seems like actually that's probably quite a naive question. And to to follow that line of reasoning isn't useful because, as, as you've said, you, your view is that it, he he'll just take what he wants and use it to justify whatever he wants. There's no there's no. I, I guess what I'm getting at is we don't think necessarily that there's there's a foundation apart from his own ego. Is that is that fair? Yes, I think absolutely. I think he's he's basically we shouldn't be seeing this in the same context as, say, Adolf Hitler in the 1930s in in the sense purely in the sense that um, when uh, Hitler was was um, uh, carrying out the Anschluss and he had very clear idea about where, where, where what, what was Germany or greater Germany, in, including obviously parts of Czechoslovakia, parts of or all of Czechoslovakia, should I say, um, 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 and Austria, etc. And he had a very clear uh, vision of what that was and and he, and he sought in the most brutal manner to, to to enable it. I think Putin's approach is, I want to be uh, this great figure of Russian history. What can I take? What is available to me? And then looks for the historical justification after that point. Um, and so he's not at the, at, the, at the point of thinking, right, well, I want to rebuild Peter the Great's empire. I want to take Sweden. I want to take all of it. Or I want to build the Soviet Union as it was in 1989 or anything like that. I just don't think that's the, the way in which he's thinking about this. Because at the end of the day, that option is not available to him. But he does want the glory of, of having taken and seized territory. And he will take what he can get. And the warning, as Dom is saying, is the warning to, to Eastern Europe now is that any country that is not part of NATO or is not part of a broader military alliance is I think should be seen as a as a as a target now in in in, in Putin's mentality. Now, of course, it's a different question as to whether he would now be capable or or to to, to um, carry out any future in, in invasion of other territory. I mean, Ukraine has been in so many ways uh, an abject humiliation for him. But even so, um, it's no surprise now, of course, that we've uh, that Finland and Sweden are seeking to join uh, to join NATO because they realise, I think, that that, that that they are in danger. And uh, as soon as you see uh, allusions to, to territory that Peter the Great seized in Sweden, then I think that they should absolutely be uh, be. Uh, concerned about that but no I, to, to your point David I think that um, uh, it's not helpful for us to and I'm sure already op-eds are being opinion uh, are being written <laughs> writing this as we speak saying you know now we should take seriously this border from 1720 or this border from 1855 and say this is Putin's real aim and I just don't think that is actually helpful um, I think he's he's looking at it in a different way. Dom what do you make of that? Well, I've only got an A-level history to go up against that, so I think I'll, I'll come off second best there. I, 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 at the risk of this t- turning into a bit of a telegraph love-in, I, I've got n- nothing to nothing to add and nothing to detract from what Francis just said. I, I, I just think this this absolutely shows 
Putin's mentality. It's, it's land and ego rather than any other kind of possible moral justification. Very quickly from me then, just for Francis. Um, is there an element here, if we are, if, if we are looking for sort of historical precedents of how to think about this, is there, an, is there a Napoleonic element here? If you look at the Napoleonic conquests, there's, there's all, there's all, he's always, he always manages to find a reason to do something. And it's not massively clear if there's a grand plan. And that's, in terms of strategy, one of the big issues with Napoleonic France and the empire is that there's, there's not necessarily something undergirding it. He just keep, keeps on going and keeps on going because they'll always find a reason. I don't, I don't know if that's fair. No, I think that's a really astute observation, actually, and, and, and one I have to go away and think about. Because, yes, you're right. I think that, you know, if, if, if Hitler had a more clear vision, as I was just sort of saying about where the borders of Germany were and then where the Lebensraum, the, the living space, would be beyond that, I think Napoleon had a much less clear a, a view about where um, France's borders should go. He, he essentially seized Italy and other territory because he was able to do so and it would enable his own career and his own standing. I mean, he idolised Julius Caesar, um, you know, he wasn't as if he was trying to restore France to some borders that, that, or, or to expand France into into territories it believed it had some claim to. Quite the opposite. It really, he was he was seeking to become a classical figure from uh, uh, the, uh, and, and great military genius, and 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 took what he could um, could get. I mean, this is a, a bit of a tangent, but I think it's um, it, it, it's it's worth thinking about in in, in terms of Napoleon. Um, quite often, the invasions he would do as well were based on slights. Um, so slights from European leaders, monarchs, etc. The biggest example, and this is his um, the, the defense of the Russian campaign in 1812, um, was actually as, uh, the slight of Alexander I after the there were numerous coalitions that were built um, trying to defeat Napoleon in the early um, 1800s um, and um, many of them were um, disasters. The biggest disaster was in 1805 at the Battle of Austerlitz when um, Austria and other nations were, were soundly defeated. Um, but And so essentially this sort of this, this, this peace um, was established in, 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 in Europe um, peace in, in inverted commas um, and, and uh, Napoleon basically insisted that there, there would not be trade with Britain, which remained the sort of the great foe um, that was undefeated, and he was unable to in, to invade due to the Battle of Trafalgar, which also took place in 1805. Um, and so uh, he put this situation in place. But Alexander the First, the Tsar, um, defied this and uh, went against uh, Napoleon's wishes and did start doing trading um, with Britain and other territories. And so Napoleon says in his accounts that the reason he invaded uh, um, Russia was not for territorial gains, though I'm sure that he would have gladly taken. Some some, um, would they have been available to him? The campaign, the campaign was a pretty unmitigated disaster. Um, but he claimed it was to to make a point that that one could not. Uh, um, act in, in, in Europe, essentially, without his say-so, that to do something um, w- w- that, that, uh, that, that, that broke, that went against the rules that he wanted to establish would, would be faced with the fiercest um, possible um, uh, Aggression, effectively, and so as I say, I just make this point that that he looked for slights, um, he looked for excuses to make his um, uh, his um, invasions and, and and to make his battle plans, and I think in the same way that Putin operates, which is not part of some vision for Europe that is perhaps um, uh, built on 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 a, on a set of clear borders, a, a clear, set, clear set of principles. It's one instead that is. 
um, almost sort of realpolitik, but with guns. You know, it's sort of this idea of what can I take and how will it boost my glory? So, yes, I think there are echoes between Napoleon and, and Putin. And perhaps, who knows, just like Putin was exiled on Elba and then St. Helena, perhaps one day we'll have Putin in front of the Hagen Hill too will be exiled to some to somewhere. Um, I think we can hope for that. But um, we're certainly a long way from it at the moment, I think. Thanks very much for that, Francis. Um, Dom, do you want to come in and, and stop our historical theorising and bring us back to reality? Well, I don't know if I can do any any good with reality. Um, and maybe it's maybe it's leaping on from Napoleon. But the, the first time these ideas will be tested, I think, will be next week. There's reports coming out of uh, French press that uh, Mr. Macron will be visiting Kiev next week. He's going to Romania on Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, there's 500 French troops in in uh, Romania. It's part of NATO's enhanced forward presence mission. It, uh, Romania obviously has a border with Ukraine. It would be a, a, a great time, very easy logistically for him to pop over the border uh, and into Kiev, at which point a lot of these questions, I'm sure, will be put to him. And these uh, these points we've just been making about um, are, you, are you still prepared to speak to Putin? I mean, fr- France are not, not necessarily in the same place as Germany. France have been very uh, forward leaning on their weapon supplies. The the one five five millimeter self propelled Caesar weapon is is in country and and we've seen footage of it being used um, as a very good capability and artillery system. So France not quite in the same boat in terms of uh, weapon supplies, but in terms of keeping the line of communication open. Uh, and uh, many people have been saying that, that Macron has been misguided in, in that regard and has been used by Putin uh, to to legitimize uh, his his war remember those 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 the photographs those ridiculous photographs of Macron sort of 30 feet away down the end of that table i mean it's just i think it's being made to look a little bit foolish on the world stage but next week should should be the first time and these 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 new <laughs> the new revelations are are put to him um so watch that one with interest thank you dom um well, I think we've got one more update um, from Francis about uh, some Chinese comments about, uh, so, sorry, so a British comments about the how the Chinese view the internet uh, and that, that the, the implication of that for the war. And then I think we're probably coming to the end of our time and I'll ask you both for your final thoughts. Yes, thanks, David. Um, so, yes, uh, uh, the Deputy Director of Strategy and Policy at GCHQ, and, and just for the benefit of our international leaders, GCH um, listeners um, and leaders, who knows, um, GC, GCHQ is our um, uh, one of the key inter- intelligence assets um, here in, in Britain and deals a lot with um, um, technology, the internet, code breaking, those sorts of things, sort of an extension of, of, of Bletchley Park in World War Two, since we're talking a lot about history today. Um, uh, but... Uh, Remarks from uh, from this uh, British spy agency chief saying that the Internet is no longer built on Western morals due to the growing influence of the Chinese state, um, essentially making the point that uh, this is a we're in a moment of reckoning in the West at the moment, as it's grappling with the increasing prominence of China's authoritarian government and the Asian sort of nation's ascent to, to superpower status. And just really making the obvious point and made these remarks at the, uh, at the Chelsea, Chelsea, Cheltenham um, Science Festival that, and I quote, we in the West have been fortunate that a lot of the technology which has driven the internet has been informed by Western liberal and democratic values. But that is not going to be the picture going forward. And I just wanted to, to mention this here in the context of 
Ukraine, because I think it is it is relevant to this, that arguably for, for a long time now, the West has taken it for granted into thinking that, as I say, whether it be economics, whether it be capitalism, whether it be soft power in culture, whether it be the Internet and, and, and its uh, and its foundations, that these things fundamentally are in some way Western. And that it's only a matter of time before, you know, if they're like waves uh, spreading around the world, that eventually they will break through all boundaries and, and, and every country will like, uh, like Fukuyama sort of theorized um, uh, or is said to have theorized. It's actually more complicated than that, to, to be fair to him. But anyway, this idea that history is over and that liberalism will win and that it's just a matter of time. That, that we're actually, I think, in a reversal a little bit of that, 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 that um, uh, you know, the, the real danger here is that Ukraine is being watched as how strong is the West in its principles and its um, strength militarily, all of these things. And the danger is that uh, it's twofold. First of all, the danger is that uh, countries like China and other autocracies say, well, clearly the West is weak. We can take Taiwan. We can offensively don't need to think about uh, our, the threat of the West long term because we are on the ascendancy. I think that's that's one way of thinking about it. But second of all, and this I think is even is the more sort of subtle point, which is that when you have uh, powers like China who are able to essentially continue to prosper by, you know, the numerous trading deals that are being conducted with the West and, uh, and other things and are essentially enabled in their expansion and in their growth economically and in terms of power, then they then become the the system that one wants to mimic, that tech companies want to mimic or want to work with. We've already seen that with Google and others, that they've um, been willing to censor themselves, Netflix too, willing to censor themselves because um, they, they, they want to be doing uh, trade with them and things like that, or sorry, to have their businesses there. Um, and the danger is, is that, 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 that this gradually slips into a slippery slope of where countries start thinking, well, you know, the West is declining, America's declining, Europe is declining. Um, we, uh, we need to look to, all, to, to where the power really is or where power is emerging. And they'll, they'll be looking to the models um, of, of China or, and they'll be looking to the, 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 the sort of ha- what enables those models, the economic models, the, the internet safety laws and all of those things. And they'll look at those and they'll think, well, maybe that's actually the better model. And I'm talking here about the emerging economies. I'm talking about the Indias, the Pakistans, the ba- Brazils, all of these countries. They, at this crucial moment, are making decisions about where, whether they go east, they look east for their, um, for their trading, for the support militarily, all of these things, or whether they look west. So Ukraine is much, much bigger than purely being about um, uh, Ukraine's sovereignty, as vital and important as that is. This is one of those moments that history, I think, will look to is to say, uh, where did, you know, w- which side won in that ultimately? And, and how did that affect the next 50 years or a century? I really think it's that significant. Um, and, and we should be looking at it in, in that context. So sorry, I'm, I know I've gone off on a bit of a tangent there about a small comment made by a deputy spy chief, but I think it, it's a much broader one and one that we should be thinking about in that kind of almost existential way. Yeah, and if I could jump in, I think that's that's being obviously being played out today in Ukraine. We can see, but also it's worth noting that started today and running for the rest of this weekend is the Shangri-La dialogue uh, in Singapore, a, a security and defence forum run by the International Institute for Strategic Studies. This is a major global uh, a forum, a meeting place of of global leaders, defence ministers, security officials, and, and what have you. Started this morning in Singapore, and already we've had the much. Uh, um, 
sort of much anticipated meeting of Lloyd Austin, the US Defense Secretary, with um, General Wei Feng, who's the who's his Chinese opposite number. Uh, they would uh, schedule this morning to have a 30 minute meeting. It's lasted for 55 minutes, which is, I guess, a good sign. You want these things to go on, go on for longer. Um, they, we were told they discussed uh, Ukraine and also Taiwan, which is which is lying out there. Um, and uh, a lot of the issues that France has just been speaking about are absolutely playing out in the in the global in the global future about about Taiwan and other uh, questions about autocracy and what have you. Um, and apparently we are told, this is from a, a senior U.S. defense official, unnamed senior U.S. defense official, that uh, Lloyd Austin said to uh, General Wei that a, a Chinese support to Russia for a full-scale invasion of Ukraine would be, quote, deeply destabilizing, which is fairly unequivocal language. After the meeting, uh, General Wei was asked, he was doorstepped as, as he came out, journalists, journalists called out to him, asked him what the uh, how the talks went, and uh, General Wei said they were candid. Now, a number of different ways you can read candid uh, just in English, so let alone what the Chinese interpretation of it would be. But but there we go. That's what General Wei said. However, good that they met. The uh, Shangri-La dialogue goes on, as I said, all weekend. The keynote speeches are tomorrow. This is all on online. It's all open. You can you can watch this online. I'll be, I'll be dialing in and um, I'm reporting on it for the for the paper here. But uh, Lloyd Austin is speaking on Saturday, uh, and General Wei on Sunday. Uh, Singapore, um, eight hours ahead of London. So depending where you are in the world, it's all all on catch up. But be uh, be worth dialing in for those or or looking for reports afterwards. But no, a major major security conference happening right now, of which Ukraine features features highly. But all the issues that France has just been talking about are are being being played out at the at the highest levels um, from those countries that uh, that really can can shape our futures. Well, thank you, Francis, and thank you, Dom. Um... I think we've probably got to the end of our time. Can I just get your thoughts of what people, aside from the, aside from the uh, security conference, what should our listeners be thinking about and looking for over the next few days, over the weekend? Well, I think we just, as, as ever, keeping an eye on the international d- developments that are taking place, the, the, the kind of um, meetings that we understand are going on between Ukrainian officials and, uh, and, and the Western NATO powers. I think there'll be some interesting developments on that next week. Um, but the, my sort of final thought really is, obviously, when we're on this podcast, we're trying to update listeners on what's going on 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 the ground but also offer sort of i suppose a a bigger picture and certainly we've done a lot of that today thinking about history and strategy and and those things and and i think we're absolutely right to do that because as i say there is a a a much bigger much of big issues bigger issues at stake um um than it can appear at first glance but that said my thought really is today is 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 for those soldiers on the front line who the, the story about the desertions and the suffering that's going on in Mariupol as well with cholera and everything else i i, I don't want listeners to get the impression that we're forgetting about them far from it um I, I think they're always in the forefront of our thoughts hence why we always start the podcast with updates of what's um going on on the ground um and so when we when we think about this in a sort of more broader way um we we we, we we're trying to offer something more but as ever our thoughts of those who, who are suffering in most horrific, horrific ways. And, and we have no, uh, you know, the, the, the danger with all of these things is, is that we, one starts looking at a map and just thinking about things in that kind of abstract way. And um, we've been doing our best to, to not do that. And, and hopefully listeners will, will agree that we've, we've at least partially succeeded. But um, I leave that up to them. Yeah, and for me, my, my thought would be every statement now from government leaders, senior officials, every statement now will be made in the wake of and the context of uh, Putin's comments. Um, 
they can't be unsaid. They can't be ignored. He's, he's finally publicly expressed his innermost motivations about what this war is all about. And every statement made by a Western leader and official from now on will be made in that context. And we should, we should watch with great interest and see, see how they construct these words and what their, what their messages are in the wake of, of Putin's revelation. For an update on the fast-changing situation in Germany, Francis Sternley spoke again to Dr Thomas Clausen, who works as a policy advisor for a liberal think tank in Berlin. This is their conversation. Can you summarise Germany's response to the crisis so far? It seems to, I think from the perspective of many listeners, seems to have rather flip-flopped around quite a lot. Um, does it have a consistent position? What's, what's really been the evolving picture since the invasion in February? I think uh, what has become very clear in the uh, past months is that Germany is not a monolithic bloc, but it's possible to identify a few key perspectives or key points that have been made by various camps. So um, it's very clear that we have the Greens and the Liberals with some members of the Social Democrats and the CDU who are very pro-Ukraine, who want heavy weaponry, etc. So that's sort of also the, the perspective that's probably most of your listeners will, uh, are sympathetic to. Then we have the, the Social Democrats, so the party of Chancellor Scholz, which is basically split and it's clear that there is some sort of pacifist wing that was in favor of Nord Stream 2, that always had a positive, slightly rose-tinted view of Putin's Russia, that of course is still aghast at what has been happening, but that is still focusing on dialogue and not trying to push it too far. But of course, there are also some members uh, in the SPD, especially on uh, amongst the backbenchers, who agree with sort of the, the Western majority that heavy weapons are needed. Um, and then we have the former communists, the left party and the right-wing populists, the AfD, who are mostly pro-Putin with nuances. So they would say, of course, we condemn the attack on Ukraine, but uh, we can't go too far with sanctions. We need dialogue, whatever that uh, means in those circumstances. And one of the reasons probably why Germany is being perceived as wavering is that uh, Scholz has thinks at least that he has to reconcile at least some parts of these different uh, uh, sub-blocks, so to speak. How representative do you think this, uh, these different opinions are in Germany itself amongst the public? Are we, is it right for us to talk about there being a difference between elite opinion and popular opinion? I, I wouldn't actually say that. So um, one lens through which one could look at the inner discourse in Germany are two open letters. It's a, so we first of all had an open letter by Alice Schwarzer, one of the leading feminists in Emma, which is a feminist journal. Now she's basically booked as a conservative, but at the time she was, of course, very much in favor of you know pro-abortion politics, etc. That's how she uh, made her, her mark in uh, German politics in the 1960s and 70s. And now she uh, published an open letter that garnered almost 300,000 signatures that basically said no heavy weapons to Ukraine, we have to be careful, dialogue, etc. Um, and in my opinion, it's a completely insane letter. And when I was uh, talking to you the last time after the Zeit and Wende speech of Scholz, where I was, I was very positive that a lot of things have changed in Germany, but she clearly um, 
represents a part of Germany that hasn't changed that much since uh, the 24th of February and that, in my opinion, hasn't really taken in what is happening in Ukraine. And then there was a re response uh, by Ralf Fuchs, who is the head of the Centrum for Liberal Modernity and who used to head the, the foundation, the political foundation of the Green Party, or that's close to the Green Party. And that's a very sane letter. It's in favor of heavy weapons. It's very clear on what the West should be doing. It's very clear that Ukraine must win. And he got uh, 72,000 signatures. And of course, the type of person who signs an open letter to the chancellor is a very peculiar one. And it's certainly not uh, necessarily representative of German opinion as a whole. But it does show that there's some sort of split in German public opinion and a split that isn't sort of divided between the elites and the ordinary population. This is something that we can see in public discourse. Um, I would say that the majority in Germany, especially if you bring in the conservatives as well, they are still very much pro-Ukraine. They support uh, the delivery of uh, heavy weaponry and one of the things that uh, happened since we last spoke. So on the 27th of April, the Bundestag approved the delivery of heavy weaponry to Ukraine. So that's still going on. But I think Scholz especially tries to navigate a party that is split and to some extent also a society that is uh, split. Germany's made a lot of uh, commitments, I think it's fair to say, to, to Ukraine and to President Zelensky around weapon delivery, uh, about energy policy. How many of these policies have actually been delivered? How many of them have been, are being followed through? That's a very difficult question. Um, and in a way, it shouldn't be difficult. And I think this is one of the problems. I think there should be a, probably when it comes to communicating to the outside world, it would have been better if Germany had been very clear on what they are delivering, why they think it's important, why they also think that Ukraine has to win and defend uh, her territory. Um, but that hasn't really happened. Instead, it's uh, very difficult to actually get good numbers. But I think what is important is that we have to split the question to two parts. So one is the military part, and there, I mean, I can only relegate uh, to the experts, and I'm not a military expert, but of course it would make sense to give to Ukraine what is needed within, of course, the limits of avoiding a nuclear war. So don't give them maybe the no-fly zone, but everything else, yes. But then there is the communication part, and that's where I think Germany has been communicating inwardly, but when it comes to communicating to allies, communicating to especially uh, our partners in Poland and in the Baltics and in Ukraine, um, it's been probably nothing short of a disaster. And that's uh, quite worrisome in a way. At least I don't think that in Germany there's sufficient enough perspective on how, how badly German reputation has suffered in the last uh, couple of uh, weeks. How do you think Germans now view Olaf Scholz? I think Olaf Scholz is still viewed quite positively. So um, we had a few big elections, the biggest one in North Rhine-Westphalia, and the Social Democrats lost. So it's it's not it's not been a, a smooth ride, but still around 30%. In the opinion polls, he's hovering around 21%. At the election, he got a good result for the Social Democrats at 25.7%. So a slight loss, but not a huge one. And interestingly, the Greens are surging, so they are now also at 21%, probably because uh, Annalena Baerbock and Robert Habeck are very popular, so they are the most popular politicians, so our foreign minister and our minister of economics. Then we have Scholz and Lindner and also Merz, uh, the leader of the opposition. 
So I take from that then that the coalition is secure because there was there was some sort of reaction, I think it's fair to say, in the early months of the war, thinking that it may well fracture, but it doesn't sound like that's very likely. I think not at the moment. There's a bit of grumbling, especially amongst the Liberals, because they suffered quite heavily in the election, so they didn't even make it into the parliament in Saarland. But that has probably not that much to do with their stance on Ukraine. They are quite close, I would say, to the Greens, also close to some people in the SPD and the Conservatives. So sort of they are within the we should support Ukraine. We are very critical of uh, Putin. The party leader, uh, Christian Lindner, has been urging for Navalny's release for more than a year now. So there's, it's, it's, I don't think that Ukraine is a question that breaks uh, their neck at the moment. Angela Merkel gave her first major interview this week. Um, about the conflict. Um, just wondering if you could summarise some of what she was saying, um, some quite interesting remarks that have, that have sent, uh, sent ripples, I think it's fair to say, around Germany and around wider Europe. It was a very interesting interview, quite long. So Merkel had been in hiding for half a year now, and then she gave an interview to an East German uh, journalist, interestingly enough. And that was probably already the first uh, key takeaway, because as usual, she was extremely well prepared and her interviewer basically couldn't keep up. So she was very clear on dates, she was precise with her quotations, and he wasn't. And I think this is already indicative of the Merkel years, that uh, one reason for her success is that she was surrounded by mediocrity, um, including a sympathetic media that didn't uh, push her. And it's it's very clear that she's uh, very skilled and also very precise on what she wants to bring across. Um, now, the most interesting thing um, that came across in the interview, I think, was her sort of tragic view of uh, history. So that was a term that came up a few times, that the situation in Ukraine is tragic, and that it's tragic that um, that it wasn't possible to create a security architecture that could have prevented this. What I also found interesting is that she was reflecting on sort of some of the key moments in Central and Eastern European history. So she talked about us, so that's the GDR in 53, so the uprising against uh, the communist rulers then, Poland in 56, Czechoslovakia in 68, and Ukraine now. And for her, 89 and 90 was some sort of lucky moment, almost a moment that should not have happened in the sense that she held her breath when you know, the Soviet soldiers left Germany when East Germany joined NATO. And now it's back to basically being one of those grim uh, moments in Eastern and Central European history. It's an error made by Russia, but there's not that much that she could have done differently. And that's also a key takeaway from the interview. There were no excuses. She was very adamant that she didn't apologize. She was saying, well, it's uh, in a way... I'm almost relieved that it's clear that I did everything that was possible in terms of trying to uh, talk to Putin. So there was no one is going to accuse her of trying, uh, not trying diplomacy enough. But I don't think there was a sense that she could have actually prevented or contributed to preventing what is happening now. Which seems quite remarkable, given a lot of the commentary there's been since the evasion about Nord Stream 2. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and I think that was the elephant in the room in a way, because she was very clear-sighted on Putin. Uh, she said uh, she always knew that he wanted to destroy the European Union, which Putin viewed as some sort of precursor to NATO. 
Um, for her, the annexation of Crimea was a cesura, but she was very clear that she never believed that Putin was some sort of the good guys. And even in 2007, when they uh, met at Sochi, he tried to intimidate her with the dog. That's a sort of famous story that's being told over and over again. But it's, at least it makes clear that she never she had, had fa- any she has a phobia of, of dogs, doesn't she? And that Precisely. And Putin yes. knew it. And the first yeah. time they met, he, he showed around a, a sort of a fluffy toy of a dog. And then later, there was an actual Labrador um, and in, in a way, I don't and I, I actually believe her that she was never so naive regarding Putin that others were like Frank Walter Steinmeier or the Social Democrats, who I think actually actually believed that there could be change through trade, that uh, Russia could be brought into a Euro- common European security architecture. So Merkel was different. But at the same time, she she never really thought that, okay, now I have to take the steps that follow from this. And the big elephant in the room is the huge uh, dependency on Russia when it comes to energy and natural resources that increased substantially during her years, also increased again between 2019 and uh, 21. And the question that wasn't asked, but of course that should be on everyone's mind, is why did Germany become so dependent on Russia, especially if uh, Merkel already saw that Putin was bent on destroying uh, Western democracy? Just while we're taking the the long view, the the historical view here, um, which conflicts do you think are in the, the, the forefront of the German political elite's consciousness is it the second world war or is it the first world war is it or is that actually an outmoded way of thinking about the german mentality on these matters i think it it can be helpful to at least briefly think on this and jeremy cliff had some good points in the new statesman where he was saying that germany is probably more worried about world war one than world war two so it's about sleepwalking into another conflict that is too big to handle rather than being seen as neville chamberlain and appeasing um Russia. And Olaf Scholz was even heard saying that he doesn't want to be another uh, William II. So I think there is a huge fear in Germany that one could be drawn into a large conflict. And there's also uh, the bigger question of how to deal with Russia. And there the idea seems to be that we have to engage with Russia on some level because they are no longer neighbors of Germany, but they are neighbors of the European Union. They are important when it comes to tackling climate change. That was also what uh, Angela Merkel mentioned. They are now important for dealing with Iran. And they used to be important for dealing with all sorts of issues, um, above all uh, resources and energy. And that is true probably for the last 200 years. So the idea that this leads into Germans not only trying to find a modus vivendi with Russia, but also projecting some sort of idealized vision of what Russia actually is onto onto Russia. This is definitely, I would say, a problem that substantial parts of the political commentariat have been uh, guilty of. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.